The U.S. Agency for International Development works with commercial contractors and nonprofits in countries where it operates. For many years, that's included religious organizations. Now USAID has established a formal policy for religious engagements. We get the details from the acting director of its Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, Amanda Vigneault. Ms. Vigneault, good to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Well, first of all, tell us what religious organizations do. I mean, give us some examples of the types of countries they're in and what they do for USAID. Well, USAID has been working with local religious communities and faith-based organizations since its inception. So for over 60 years, they've been essential partners in our work in sustainable development and humanitarian assistance in a variety of sectors. That includes food security, strengthening health systems, building climate resistance infrastructure, advancing pluralism. And the policy highlights some concrete examples of the work that we do and how that's advancing the overall mission of USAID. But I think it's important to step back and to talk a little bit about the why, why we've done this work in so many places, why we've done it for so long. And that is in part due to the fact that religious communities, whether they're formal or informal, whether they're global or local, are in every part of the world. So in many of the places where USAID works, we know that religion plays a significant role in daily life. And some countries where USAID has a presence, individuals are reporting high levels of religious commitment, sometimes upwards of 80 or 90%. And that for us is more than just a data point. It's an opportunity for learning. It's an opportunity for engagement. And it's critical to advancing locally led development, both in how we engage with civil society, but also in how we advance our results and our outcomes. The other thing that I think is important to note is that we know, and this is from 60 years of lived experience, that religious communities bring distinct contributions in development and humanitarian assistance, whether that's history and presence, because they've been there often longer than development professionals have been. Their work predates even USAID's existence, but they also bring trust and influence. They have access to reach vulnerable populations that government officials may not. All of those things working together, again, represent opportunities for positive engagement. And that intentionality is critical for us being able to advance our outcomes. It sounds almost as if they can provide moral support for someone laying a concrete pipe because you wouldn't go to a church or a mosque. Probably they don't have the capability of digging ditches and laying pipes or whatever the project might be or fixing up the electrical grid. But for people that may not trust machinery and contractors coming in and this kind of thing, the local religious leader might be able to say, it's okay, it's good money, and it's going to be a good project, so to speak. Well, I think something that we see is a holistic approach, and that's distinct in religious communities and faith-based organizations. They are not thinking of one program or one project. They're thinking about the whole community, and they're often thinking about the whole person. And as we think about upholding human dignity, that's a really vital piece of the puzzle. And do these religious organizations, do they get money from USAID for specific tasks, or do you just maybe enlist them as, I don't know, volunteer partners to help alongside with the contractors and work doing nonprofits that are also involved? 
So it ranges. And strategic religious engagement at USAID is an intentional and it's an evidence-based approach, but we define it as the process of collaborating and partnering with religious communities and faith-based organizations, both globally and locally. And so it could look like making an award to a faith-based organization, but it could look like broader civil society engagement and stakeholder consultations to identify the priorities of individuals and organizations in the community that perhaps we haven't engaged yet. And I would say the last piece of that definition, which is so critical, is the overall goal of our religious engagement efforts is to advance our shared development and humanitarian goals. And that word shared is really intentional. And it's so important because it underscores the principle of mutuality upon which locally led development is predicated. And that has to do with identifying what is common between us so that we can intentionally and jointly pursue this vision of a better world. That's the strategic part. We get the question a lot. What makes it strategic religious engagement? For me, it's a question of how do we work together more effectively, bringing the best of our resources to bear on a particular development or humanitarian challenge. That's more than a meeting, and that's more than a one-off transactional engagement. That's a strategic approach that we apply to doing development in a way that's more inclusive and hopefully more impactful. We are speaking with Amanda Vigno. She is director of the Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships at the U.S. Agency for International Development. And let's get to this new policy that you have for religious engagement. As you mentioned, USAID has been using religious organizations, partnering with them for 60 years. Why a policy now? And what does the policy intend to do here? Absolutely. So USAID, like I said, has been engaging faith-based communities for a long time. And when we look back across the decades, we see these moments in recent U.S. history where concrete steps, signposts, so to speak, have signaled to our workforce that this is important, valuable work. So 10 years ago, for example, we saw the release of the 2013 U.S. National Strategy on Religious Leader and Faith Community Engagement. And that strategy called on U.S. government officials to develop and deepen their relationships with religious leaders and faith communities as they carry out their foreign policy responsibilities. And then 20 years ago, we saw the creation of the first White House and subsequently first USAID faith-based office, which was designed to help us institutionally build bridges with faith communities. And so the creation of our office was originally constituted by executive order but has been reconstituted by every administration since. So going back to February 14th, 2021, President Biden released an executive order that reconstituted the work of our office and specifically called on uh, USAID to enhance our engagement with development and humanitarian practitioners who are in religious communities. And so in many ways, as we look back over the decades, there have been these moments of intentionality, and USAID's new Building Bridges policy really builds upon these moments as we endeavor to equip our workforce with the tools and the knowledge to engage religious actors in principle and in practice. But the last thing I want to throw in here, and I think it's really important, is that in addition to this legacy work and these sort of signposts along the way, when we look at USAID right now, the moment we're in, it's really strategic that we've been able to release the policy under the administrator's vision 
for an agency for inclusive development. When we think about driving progress beyond programs, the agency's localization agenda, its prioritization of inclusive development and DEIA, the diversification of our partner base, strategic religious engagement is part and parcel of all of these efforts. And what happens when a particular religious group might have the total respect of the community there but their practices and beliefs might run crossways from what is accepted cultural practice here in the rich old West, where you know only 5% of the people even set foot in a church anymore, for example. I think part of what's critical, and the policy articulates this, we have to be mindful that the policy was not created in a vacuum. So at USAID, we have the safeguards and the guardrails in place to identify the partner's that are best suited for the jobs on the ground. And so being mindful of that and ensuring that the relationships that we are cultivating over time are done on our part with full respect and inclusivity, but also done in compliance with the legal requirements that we have as an agency is critical to effective development results at the end of the day. Right. So I guess specifically suppose some religious group says, well, women can't do this type of thing. They can only do this kind of thing. You have to make a decision at some point. Well, and I think that's where it comes down to how USAID has been partnering for 60 years. So the strategic religious engagement policy is about enhancing the engagement that we have with community members. But the contracting decisions that we make as an agency are guided by non-discrimination policies. They're guided by principles of inclusive development and how we integrate that across the program cycle. So this is part and parcel of how we think about enhanced community engagement, but it's not prioritizing the beliefs of individual religious communities or faith-based organizations above the guardrails that the agency has already set to ensure best practices in our work around the world. Well, it sounds interesting, and it sounds like there is a good, I guess, statutory basis for this, and now there's a, an executive order reconstituting it, and the policy reading it doesn't look all that prescriptive as far as policies that you generally read in the government. It seems more descriptive than prescriptive. Fair way to put it? There are different types of policies at USAID. So there's strategies, there's policies, there's vision statements. And so this policy is not a list of thou shalls in government speak. It's, it's a commitment on behalf of the agency that articulates how we engage with religious communities. And it's uh, articulating the posture and the principles with which we conduct our engagement. So when we look at the principles, bridges, belonging, respect, inclusion, dignity, growth, equity, and sustainability, this is aligned deeply with the values that USAID has and what we've really shown over 60 years of work in this space. Amanda Vigno is director of the Center for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that religious engagement policy at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. 
Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. 
So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.